And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello and welcome to the show. The Phil Hay Show brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan. Alongside me from The Square Ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. And the guy with his name on the show, Phil Hay. Hello. You can subscribe to The Athletic now. Read everything Phil's doing and uh, the Premier League, the whole world of sports. 33% discount off the price of a full sob if you go to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod where you can read. Just before we get to that, have you noticed anything different about Normanton today? No. He's wearing trousers. (laughs) To be clear, instead of shorts... Instead of shorts, yes. He's normally naked from the waist yeah, down. Yeah, no, 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 that's, that's generally how it is on a Thursday, yes. But the shorts have gone, which is either a good sign and the season's about to turn or a bad sign and, and Michael's packed it in. But anyway, yes, on, on The Athletic this week... We speak um, to Michael Normanson's trouser tailor. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, Aldi, I think, last time we, we discussed <laughs> how that. How dare you? <laughs> Little all the way. There is, um, on the site, just away from Leeds, but it does involve Leeds, there's a, a great write-up about the emergency meeting that the Premier League had on Monday covering the Saudi takeover at Newcastle, but more specifically the related party regulations that they're trying to push through, which will basically limit the sponsorship that Newcastle and the Saudis can do and the scale of the deals that they're they're able to agree. There's also a read by me um, focusing on squad size at at Leeds, which I know has been a topic of conversation right back to day dot with, with Bielsa, but I think is of relevance at the moment. And also, and this is a conversation we've had on um, the podcast several times, 4141 versus 3313, which is best? I think that will all be at the root of what we discussed today, won't it? Uh, uh, very possible, yes. And a reminder that that is all at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod if you want to subscribe with that 33% discount. Well, let's get into all that then, all the stuff that happened and the, the bad reaction to Southampton. There's been a lot said this week, obviously, Phil. So let's deal, first of all, with the reaction we were woeful at the weekend and I think a lot of people have been really down in the dumps about that performance. Do you think the reaction was fair and proportionate? Just about. I don't think it was excessive and, and that is definitely the context. It, it was a woeful performance. I think probably the worst we've ever seen under Bielsa. The only game which I think in its entirety compares is Wigan at home Crawley in the as well. season. Well, Crawley, yeah, except the team was all over the place that day and... You know, there were kind of 23s bombed in. There were substitutions made at half time that had obviously been pre-planned and were made irrespective of the fact that the game wasn't going as as it should have done. When it comes to league games, Barnsley in the promotion season was a terrible performance. But in a sort of sadistic way, I quite enjoyed a last trip to purgatory before promotion. And I think everybody was emotionally spent by that point. It was the end of the season. They'd devoted everything to it. They'd, they'd invested everything in it. So you, you totally understood that. Saturday was so unlike Bielsa's leads. And he said that himself afterwards. He said that is not, you know, evidently that is not us as we normally are. They were troubled massively by Southampton's high press, but they were also troubled by the quality of their own passing and movement, their ability to take advantage of situations where, given how high Southampton were up the field, situations where Leeds could have counter-attacked and, and actually over the years have always counter-attacked really well in, in those situations. Some of the best goals scored under Bielsa have been on the counter and it's almost, as we say, you know, a bit of a disguised weapon of this team because you think of them as a team who are on the ball constantly and, and therefore always attacking and, and always beyond the halfway line. Without any doubt, there were players missing, big players missing and I, I think at, at this juncture, and I did say this after the game, I think they need their key players more than ever at the moment. Your Rafinha's, your, your Phillips. I think they are going to be crucial when it comes to just levelling this season out. And from start to finish, I felt as if after about five ten minutes, you kind of knew that they were going to they were going to lose that game. And to go back to what I was saying about the the squad size, the problem with the bench on Saturday was that it was so weak, if you want to use that word, but inexperienced certainly that you knew as soon as you saw the team sheet that. If Leeds got into trouble at St Mary's, they were going to be in big trouble because that bench was highly unlikely to dig them out of it. What about the formation then? 
Because we said preemptively heading into that game that we never quite look as good in that formation as we do when we're playing the 4-1-4-1. Why can't we do that? What, what is it about that formation that makes us come up short? We've had a really close look. So I got our, um, one of our stats guys, Tom Warville, to have a close look at the difference between 3-3-1-3 under Bielsa and 4-1-4-1. And I think one thing that is important to say is that they've played 4-1-4-1 in a vast number of games, a huge number of games, more than 100. And actually going through the fixtures, as far as we could tell, there were only, I think, 17 in which they'd actually started the game with three at the back. And on that basis, they're going to be more fluent in 4-1-4-1 because they use it more often. They're going to understand it better. They're going to be more kind of finely tuned in it. I think the, the issue with the three at the back is that in order to set up like that, you, you effectively sacrifice a central midfielder. So you do have a midfield three, but in Bielsa's team, your wide players tend to be very, very wide. And, and you find a scenario where whoever is in the middle of that three, and on Saturday it was Clake, becomes very, very isolated and, and can have huge amounts of space round about them in which... The opposition are able to flood him, um, are able to, to kind of crowd him out. And because of the way Southampton pressed, and I think not just that, but because of how difficult Leeds found it to beat the press, where a strike in the middle of the three, the defensive three is supposed to push on and almost to become a, an additional midfielder in possession. He was so deep that he was almost like a sweeper for the entire game. And, and you'll see in the piece that I've written today, we've, we've taken some screen grabs from the game. There were so many situations in the first 20, 25 minutes where... The ball was coming out to strike and there were just no options at all. He was going sideways to either Llorente um, or Cooper or they were trying to pick out Dallas or um, Shackleton as leads do with diagonals out wide. But because of the way Southampton were pressing, it was just constantly going back to Melly and there was very little link up between strike and Clake in front of him. And it, it was no surprise at all when I think we all realised at halftime that the, the XG of 0.01 was probably bang on because it hadn't felt as if Leeds had created anything at bit, all bit excessive if you ask me there was there was the turn and the shot from Roberts from 25-30 yards out which was a, a hit and hope but you, you can see in the, the structure and in the performance why it was that they struggled to create because it was very difficult for them to get good ball out and actually there were occasions where they ended up having to look for knockdowns from high balls forward from Melly, and that's just not the way Bielsa plays it's just not the way Bielsa wants to construct attacks and Southampton I think made it their game on Saturday Rodrigo became the lightning rod for a lot of the criticism along with Tyler Roberts but do you think the problem was further back then it was a, a more like a deep lying midfield issue than something that was up front it was part of it uh, I think in a game, on a day like that I think you would have got more from Bamford up front because you really did need some hold up play from the centre forward I look at Rodrigo and I look at the size of Southampton's defence and I do think that expecting him to win aerials or to make much of, of high balls towards him is, is asking a lot. I don't think that is going to work and, and there was a bit too much of that on Saturday. His pressing wasn't brilliant, I didn't think, but watching back through the game, there were also occasions where he got himself into good positions, particularly when Leeds were in transition and, and had turned over ball in their own half looking to counter and the reason the ball never came to him was because Leeds were never able to make anything of it. There seemed to be an extraordinary number of poor touches and misplaced passes and just the wrong decision at, at the wrong time. And I, I, I don't know, I, I came away from Saturday feeling that to focus on Rodrigo and Roberts after that would be to ignore the bigger picture, which is that a hell of a lot of these players just are not in form mm. at the moment. They just, they just aren't. And there are isolated problems with Rodrigo in that he is not performing as you'd expect a £27 million player to or Spain international to perform. There's a problem with Roberts in that the impact from him is just not there, really, in, in a lot of games. But if you start going through the individual positions, there aren't that many players who are who are playing well. And as I say, I, I think it, at this point, it really is key that they have Rafinha in the team, they have Calvin Phillips. You said last week that you'd like a scenario where actually it was difficult for Bamford to, to come back into the team. I have to be honest, if Bamford's fit this weekend, and I think there's still a, quite a big doubt over that, we'll, we'll obviously hear from Bielsa a little bit later, but if he was fit this weekend, I'd want to see him back in at nine. I really mm -hmm. would. I, I think he needs to be there at the moment. Yeah, we are recording uh, the first two parts of this ahead of the press conference, and then you will break off and, and, and join that. It'll be an interesting one, actually, um, to find out what, what the mood is like, because it's been it's probably the lowest I can ever remember it this week. Under Bielsa, the club did put out a um, a training video of Calvin, didn't they? Which I think may have lifted some spirits. They put that on Instagram, I think, just to maybe give everyone like it's not so bad. Look, here he is Look. jumping over some little hurdles. <laughs> maybe the middle of the pitch won't be won't be such a horrible void on on Saturday. Springs eternal, but but of course he was there at, at St Mary's, and it was a 
sort of borderline decision. Bale had decided not to risk him. And he also had Rafinha, who'd, who'd flown back from, he played for Brazil against Uruguay in, in Manaus the day before. And had flown back on a private jet and there'd been an agreement between various Premier League clubs that they would pay great expense for this jet. Six figures, had, six figures, wasn't it? It was around about £100,000, yeah. There were bedrooms on board so the players could get a proper sleep and and two of the other guys who flew back with him were Thiago Silva at Chelsea and, and Douglas Luiz at Aston Villa and the idea was get him a good night's rest. He got to the team hotel kind of late Friday Friday evening, Friday night, had a night's sleep but then on, on Saturday it was decided that Bielsa's decision round about midday that it wasn't worth risking him. I sort of feel with hindsight that it might not have been the worst idea in the world to at least have had him on the bench and in those last 10 minutes rather than than turning to Gelhard and I think we should talk about Gelhard actually shortly but rather than turning to him and you know looking for a Hail Mary pass from him throw Rafinha on and put somebody on the pitch that Southampton would think straight away this guy's trouble you know this guy this guy is difficult to deal with and might just have changed the psychology of the stadium because I did feel in the last 10 minutes that it was getting a little twitchy at St Mary's because Simply, they they hadn't finished leads off. Mm, yeah, yeah, no, we said exactly the same, didn't we, through the week? Like, just put him on the bench, especially with nine subs. Even if you don't use him, you know, at least he's there as a threat. Mind you, if, if he'd been on the bench and they're not used under those circumstances, that's uh, that's and, a problem. And, isn't and it? also, if he if he'd come on and pulled a muscle, everybody was would have said, well, he was playing in Brazil thirty six hours earlier. So, quite honestly, what were you expecting? You know, you really have walked into that one. Did any of the um, other Brazilians from the other clubs feature for theirs? Louise played for Villa. Yeah, um, Chelsea had said in advance that Thiago Silva um, wasn't going to play in their game because of how how much time he'd been on the field in Brazil's last um, World Cup qualifier. But obviously the jet had been arranged before then and the idea of it was that it would get them back to England so quickly afterwards that they would at least have a chance, you know, Mm. an outside chance. I mean, the bigger picture here is kind of FIFA's total intransigence about domestic club football and the fact that they are trying to ram these three these three qualifiers into every international break every time South American players go away. But as I say, you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't because if he suffers an injury in that game, then it looks negligent, really. But they could have done with him. I'm sure FIFA have got some solutions in the pipeline. Uh, more to, World Cups, maybe? To, to yeah. reducing the amount of games played. Sounds like the, the right idea. Oh, yeah, Clowns. In my opinion, it's risk versus reward though, isn't it? Football. That's the whole thing. Um, you decide where you make your risks and whether it's worth the rewards. And And I don't know... I just from the outside looking in, you see Bielsa's leads as a team that is it's outputting constantly at like you know ninety nine percent in terms of effort and physical application. So what is it about a flight or three games over the course of ten days that made them feel like oh well he's not it's not worth risking him? Is it just the flight or is it the amount of football? No, what is it because it's, they're they're training very very hard all the time at it, It's Arch. potentially the fatigue in your legs um, and it's it's managing that. So they they now these days clubs have loads of software, um, loads of data analysis that can show you the, the load that players are carrying in training or over games. And the bottom line is that you can't push them too far without risking injury. They get into what they call the red zone, which is where medical staff will say to a head coach, the risk of injury to this guy is much higher this weekend. So it's your call, but you might want to think about either resting him, putting him on the bench, leaving him out altogether, or you might want to think about giving him an hour and, and consider the point in the game where you might want to to replace him. Rest is such a big part of recovery now that I think they were concerned about realistically how much rest Rafinha was able to get or would be able to get, except, like I say, there were proper double beds on the plane and he was at the the team hotel for a night's sleep on the Friday. That, though, is not to say that on the Saturday morning he wouldn't have felt jet-lagged and absolutely exhausted. I mean, like... Sunday, Sunday football, Sunday league football. I've seen the states that some of those players yes, show up in. But do they, <laughs> a night on the tabs in the ale. Yes, but do they do they generally play well, <laughs> or do they generally just waddle about at the back trying to keep um, keep out of the way, trying not uh, to throw up? <laughs> I am, um, as I say, I, I think I would have totally understood if he'd been on the bench if they hadn't started him. It, it might have been too much of a of a risk that. And it has to be said that even though I don't want to see Rafinha out of the team. I certainly don't want to see him injured at this juncture either. In terms of pre-match testing, do they actually have a, a set of things they would have Rafinha doing to then assess whether or not he is fit enough to play? Do they do they kind of do a the old the old-fashioned faces a late fitness test? It's or- a good question that I, I'm not sure what they would have done on Saturday actually, but what they do get and and this also comes from um, national associations. So if players go away with England or away with Brazil, you tend to get a lot of the data sent 
back to the medical staff so they can see exactly what's what's gone on. And it tends to be done as a combination of data analysis, so that the hardcore numbers, what they're telling you, but also, you know, the the kind of naked eye stuff of how is the player feeling? You know, how how does he actually feel? Does he feel fit to play? I don't know how uh, Rafinha felt on Saturday. I don't know what he said. I don't know what he said to Bielsa. I don't know if he said to Bielsa that he felt he was he was ready to play. But the decision the decision was taken. As I say, it, it is difficult because if there'd been an injury, that it would not have gone down well, would yeah. it? And you would also have left yourself open to the, the idea that you're so desperate to have him in the team that you were willing to take that gamble. We have to qualify this by saying, you know, hindsight is a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. It does just feel like, I don't know, it was a missed opportunity, not like you said, not to have him on the bench, but that brings questions of its own. We've seen a few questions about Bielsa's judgment in terms of not using Rafinha, squad size. Do you think this is the most pressure he's been under since he's been at Leeds? I would say so, although I don't think particularly internally at the club. I, I I think they feel that with everybody fit or most people fit, they're a much better team than, than they were on Saturday. And actually, I think they feel deep down that they are a better team than Southampton and, and quite a lot of sides in this division. But they're not oblivious to the fact that it hasn't been a good start and, and that the form has been poor. And, and I think most people in the club can see as well that that probably is as badly as they've ever played under Bielsa, give or take, you know, a, a handful of games. The thing about the squad size is that I don't think you can say that it's been a mistake for Bielsa to do that because they were playoff semi-finalists year one, championship title winners year two, ninth in the Premier League last season. So it has worked. And what he would say is that part of the reason it's worked is because it's helped to create a really healthy atmosphere in the dressing room. He, he haven't really had, he hasn't had to deal with sulking footballers with very, very few exceptions. He hasn't had to deal with footballers who aren't surplus, but are, who aren't sulking, sorry, but are surplus and spend the whole time thinking, I've no idea what I'm doing here because I'm never playing and I'm never never really getting a chance. That is why he likes the small group. But I think over those three years, the form in the squad from top to bottom has always been good. It's always been there and it's always been reliable, which has meant that whenever he's had to change things, and even change things quite drastically because he's had quite a long injury list, the players who've come in have played well. I think at the moment he's got a bit of a perfect storm where there are a lot of injuries but the form of the squad is not good either. You know, there are a lot of players who are not playing particularly well. And because of that, it does leave them leave them exposed. And I like seeing the 23s involved and I, I think they should be involved. But I just don't know whether you can get away with a bench like that at Southampton too often. And I do feel, and you, you might feel differently, but I seem to turn up at an awful lot of games where the reaction to the lineup on Twitter is bench looks a bit weak, bench looks a bit thin. That seems to happen an awful lot. And just to go back to Gilhart as well, I saw somebody say on Twitter when he came off the bench, this is a really big chance for him, you know, really big opportunity for him. I don't honestly agree with that because I, Leeds were not playing well. The game it was had not gone. not a good yeah. performance. It had gone, hadn't it? So I was talking about the Hill Mary pass. That, that's kind of what it was. That's, you know, I think that's a really good, a good and accurate way to describe it, yeah. Putting yes. this guy on, 19-year-old, yeah. and thinking hopefully hopefully he does something. I understand the substitution because from the bench, that was the best the best option. But somebody like Gilhart, I do want to see him get minutes. I do want to see him be involved, but I'd like to see him involved in a scenario where he's likely to shine. And I just felt on Saturday that in that situation, I think he completed one pass in 15 minutes. Not his fault. It just was, there was no connection between the defence and the midfield, the, the forward line. It, it kind of all all fallen to bits. And, and in those circumstances, it was it was kind of thankless. I'd agree with the thing on the lineup. You said going into it, Michael, didn't you? Um... Don't fancy this today at all. You just look at the first the first eleven that started there as well, and not only are there no options to change it, other than I guess Adam Forshaw, who we can't truthfully we as as good as Bielsa might think he can be, we can't trust him, can we? Because of his his injuries. But you look down the centre of that team, and you can see Strike, as Phil said, trying to play that midfield role that he's not entirely comfortable with, having to step forward. You've got Tyler Roberts having to step back, and I'm not sure either of them are necessarily at this point in their development good enough to be the spine of a team in there. So it, no. it, without Phillips and, uh, I mean, I know Rafinha's out on the wing, but without the kind of key players in there, it, it does start to look very thin. And you're looking at the bench and you're thinking, well, under what circumstances are you ever going to bring on some of these players? Because mainly you want options on the bench, don't you? Yeah. Whereas you get the feeling like McKinstry and Hjelder and people like that, they're basically on there because there's a space for someone on the bench. But I can't see them. I, I couldn't have seen that any circumstance in which they would have come on at the weekend. It's possible that, that they might have done, but I think it would have been injuries more than anything. So if there'd been big issues at centre-back suddenly, and Urente did look like he'd, he'd done something to his back after the goal. Creswell was there as well, but if he suddenly needed two centre-backs on the pitch, then 
than Helder is there. But it is very much the, the padding behind your, your senior core of players. And you can't pretend that six players out isn't a, isn't a large number. I mean, it is. And, and I think, but Leeds probably suffer more than most from injuries because of how, how thin it is, um, or at least they're most prone to injuries. That's probably a better way to put it. But yeah, you have to say that Southampton have players missing on Saturday as well, Adams and, and Ward-Prowse in particular. And the thing that concerned me was that I, I was pretty optimistic of a win down there, but I 100% expected Leeds to go there and compete. Uh, I expect them to compete strongly in that game, and I didn't feel like they did. What did you make of Forshaw out of interest? I didn't think he did badly when he came on. I didn't think he was great either, but again, you were kind of being pitched into a situation which wasn't working, and, and I don't think that substitution alone at that stage in the game was going to make a huge difference. I wonder with hindsight whether there was an opportunity to, to shuffle it earlier and, and to kind of spot the fact that it wasn't working with the back three because Strike wasn't able to come forward and wasn't able to, to bring the ball bring the ball out and Leeds seemed to be getting outnumbered in that area and that you know we sort of talk about pragmatism that seems to me the sort of occasion where perhaps a little tweak of the system would be a good idea Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily with 24-7 US based live customer service from Discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Well, after a challenging weekend at Southampton, fully United, we faced the challenge ourselves when it came to deciding what to do in the middle part of this podcast where we talk about something in depth. Because it feels like the mood needs to be lifted a little bit. So let's lift the mood. And we settled on the weird and the wonderful was the topic we thought we'd have a natter about, Phil. Some of the incidents that have made us smile, because I think we need we need some smiles putting back on our faces, don't we? Possibly, possibly, yes. Yes, hit me. I've given you a list of weird and wonderful things that have gone on in all the time I've I've covered Leeds. Not so much um, things people will be aware of, but odd bits and pieces that went on doing interviews and trips and, and everything else. Right, so let's start, first of all... Pick your favourite. With, well... The Cellino meeting, I think, because it's top of the list and he was half a bottle in, was he, by the time you spoke to him? He used to quite regularly and unashamedly, it has to be said, he never never tried to hide this, um, get stuck into Chivas Regal post, post-lunchtime. So you'll remember that his first game in charge was down at Watford um, with McDermott, got beaten 3-0 and beaten really easily. And that was... I mean, that, when, when, is that when he was picking the team, you mean? Uh, um, <laughs> I think um, I think the allegations of that came later but that was the famous day if you remember where he and McDermott were pictured together for the first time on the bench and Chilino is kind of going on and on and on and McDermott just seems to be staring, staring into space and, and was obviously um, about to be sacked so I tried to call a Chilino after the game outside said you know can just have a, a quick chat about What's to come, you know, because he he hadn't he'd done a, a briefing down in London, um, which I hadn't been at. So I, I said to him, you know, it'd be nice to ask a few questions of you. So he said, come to come to my offices tomorrow at four o'clock um, at Ellen Road, and he didn't really know what that meant because he'd hardly got in the building, so he he didn't know if he really had an office or what he was <laughs> going to be doing. So I went down at four o'clock. I said, somebody, I'm here to see Massimo Cellino, and they sent me up to what was the Harwood Suite, which I think is still in existence or, or might now actually be be the Legends Lounge. And he was in there with Whiskey. He was also in there with Luke Dowling, who you, whose name you might have forgotten, but he'd been brought in as kind of de facto sporting director by McDermott. And the weird thing about Dowling being there was that obviously McDermott was nowhere to be seen. You know, he, he wasn't in the meeting. He wasn't um, involved in it. There was a lot of conversation going on about who are we signing, who are we getting rid of, which contracts are we going to tear up um, and then end up in court over. And then, yeah, for about an hour and a half, I... He spent the whole interview, part of it sat down, but then part of it just wandering around. So he would say to you, come outside, go outside onto the balcony. And he'd start wiping the dust off the iron girders out there. Good Scottish word, that. And he'd say to me, where are the cleaners? Why don't the cleaners come and 
clean this stuff. You know, you sacked them this Well, I think, <laughs> I think at that point they were still hanging in. And it was, it was just a, a litany of, well, partly this is what I'm going to do. And then partly this is what I absolutely hate about what I've found, including dusty seats and things that, that are not cleaned. Um, and it was, it was an absolute eye opener and it was the perfect depiction of the man we would come to know. And before that, let's go one step back in time and David Haig and the, and the breakfast meeting. Well, the week where Chilino's takeover was agreed um, before Leeds played down at Yeovil, it was kind of um, it was kind of coming and it was coming and it was coming. And it was a couple of weeks after, or a week, I think, after McDermott had been sacked and then reinstated. But essentially, at, at that point, it had been accepted by everybody that, look, if the football, if the EFL Football League do approve this, this is going to go through. You know, it's GFH are selling, Chilino's buying, there doesn't seem to be anybody else at the table. And there'd been that little... That little flurry, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday time, you remember Mike Farnham was on the scene, suggestions of, you know, consortiums getting together to buy it and, and stop Chilino getting in through the door. But by the end of that week and by the time we were going to Yeovil, it was basically Chilino's club. It was going to be unless the EFL blocked it. So I did a column for the Union Post on the Friday saying, look, I don't much like the look of Chilino, I have to be honest, but GFH need to go in, in every... <laughs> conceivable way Haig was looking at becoming um, MD I think it was under under Chilino you had um, Salim Patel you had Hisham al you had, had these guys and, and I just said in this column there's absolutely no reason for them to be staying there you know that they're not liked in Leeds they're not popular people don't need to see them see them around you know and, and people around here won't forget like they will not forget what's what's gone on needless to say I had a phone call from Haig on the Saturday and then there was a, a breakfast meeting I think the following week where he said, to, and we, we weren't interviewing him at that point, although he was quite keen for some pieces to be written about him. I just didn't... So who, who instigated that? Was it him or it, you? No, it was the club who said, yeah. you know, come come down to do this. And he, he was quite keen to have some pieces written, but I was sort of saying to him, trouble is, not, you know, not going to be positive. You know, if, if you're looking for good coverage here, it's, you, you're not going not gonna to get it. So he said to me, we were in with a lot of other journalists, um, it was a very nice breakfast, but it's a bit awkward. Did you, did you end up paying? He's, he's, no, no, it's free. It was, <laughs> it was absolutely free. Um, and I tell you, the breakfasts have got better at, at Ellen Road since then. But he, so he said to me, do you think I should resign? <laughs> and I said to him, to be quite honest, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Because I just don't think you're, I just don't think you're up to it. I just don't think you're the right man for this toll. And I don't think you are in any way qualified to be the MD of a championship football club. So that went down well. Take the um, job in Dubai, David. It sounds great. Well, yes. And um, what, what did he react uh, to that like? I went. What did he do? I think he was a bit surprised, to say the least. But I didn't think well, it what was... What was he hoping to hear? I think he was hoping to hear me say no. <laughs> Stick around. But it just felt like the time to kind of be, be frank. Yeah. What was his skill set, in his opinion? He he, doesn't, you don't have to necessarily say he was good uh, at these um, things. Managing McDonald's when teenage? No? <laughs> uh, being born in Beeston... What else did he have on there? Um, he'd, he'd said he'd written for a newspaper, hadn't it? And it was actually like had a letter published or something. There was some, <laughs> there was some, some other slight element of fiction. He, he had a legal background. I don't know what it was exactly, and I don't know how highly trained he was in, in, in legal circles. But there's a massive difference between that and being able to run a football club. It's not only on at a football club. It's not only about understanding how it works. It's about being able to manage the politics. It's a about being able to do the right things at the right time. So you, that night where Leeds got hammered at Bournemouth with McDermott, the wages were about to be late and everybody knew that there was going to be a problem with paying the wage bill that month because GFH didn't want to pay it. They were selling the club. Chilino didn't want to buy it because he was still in that process of trying to appeal the EFL's attempt to, to block the takeover. And nobody turned up at the training ground to say to McDermott or the players in advance, listen, there's going to be an issue on Thursday or Friday, whenever you're supposed to be paid, there's going to be a problem with this. It will get resolved, but you might just have to accept that it's going to be a few days, few days late. The money just didn't appear in the bank accounts. And it's that sort of thing where if you're running a club, and I accept that the club is a complete mess at that point, but if you are, you need to be on top of everything. You need to be able to, to manage everything. I would hate to be a, a Premier League CEO. You're not only managing the club and all the, the finance within it, but you've also got to manage the politics over at, at the Premier League as well, which are absolutely vast. And as I was saying on the intro to this, if you want to know what it's like at Premier League meetings and what it's like within the circle of 20 Premier League clubs, go and read that piece that we've done on Newcastle this week. Because it's absolutely amazing story of Lee Charley turning up with a letter on Newcastle's behalf and saying to the other clubs, if you introduce this related party legislation and block us from doing sponsorship deals like that, 
you will be legally liable as the Premier League, as clubs, but not only that, as di- as directors of clubs as well. That this was the introductory statement from Newcastle after the Hi everybody, pleased please to meet you. Absolutely extraordinary. So it's a really, really tough job, seriously tough job, and it's not for everybody. It's not for everybody because uh, I mean we've said them on shows before about GFH being in touch with us and running transfer targets by us <laughs> and tipping us off apparently about Becchio being dis- they put it as disruptive it was Salim Patel who was uh, describing him as being disruptive and, mm. and I knew that they were going to try and flog him in that window when they did which was don't ask us we're idiots I mean as should be clear by now we're idiots but then again you know you mentioned Mike Farnan then and I just checked while you were you were talking then I've still got Mike Farnan's phone number I have in, yeah. in my mobile because he was contacting us to try and I don't know what the right word is to influence fan opinion or to contact like what they viewed as stakeholders, major stakeholders within the fan base. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know, Mike. <laughs> you, seem, you seem like you might be better than the current people, but I don't really know anything about you other than you're a Man United fan. Yeah. It's, it's the one saving grace, isn't it, after a thing like Southampton away, that it's not very difficult to quickly plug back into how bad it used to be yeah, and I mean, actually. What I really like know. about the current ownership is that none of them ask me anything and I, I'd like to keep it that way. <laughs> I've got nothing to offer. I really <laughs> yeah. haven't. Other than Radrazani's Twitter account, which could do with a bit of um, yeah. a bit of moderating, I think yes. generally the, the amount we hear from them is is positive. Yeah, I don't think you're alone in thinking that. <laughs> Mind you, um, going back to Bates, so obviously they predated uh, Bates predated GFH, and you've just said Bates interview 2011 on one of these that you sent through. Susanna staring. This was before the 2011-12 season, which I think everybody knew beforehand was not going to go well. Leeds had got to the well, hadn't got to the playoffs, but should have got to the playoffs. And, and actually, going back to Christmas of the first season back after League One, should have had a, a better shout of, of automatic promotion. And that we we have spoken previously about that transfer window, which was I, I'm sure I'm right in saying that the first deal done was Rahubka as second choice <laughs> goalkeeper. And it was just a struggle all the way through, right the way through. They couldn't land anybody. The players, they, they spoke to Boyer. They thought they were going to get Boyer. Boyer decided he was going to go to Ipswich instead. Nothing fell into place. And a lot of people who think Leeds have stood still a little bit this summer um, absolutely stood still that summer, if not went backwards. So I went to interview Bates, I think after the first game of the season, which was Southampton away. And I'm pretty sure I've not been to Southampton prior to Saturday since that horrendous opening day game where everybody turned on Bates and he thought, we're 60 minutes into this season and it's already um, it's already an absolute disaster. Um, <laughs> One hour. So the que- <laughs> the questions were all, well, why haven't you signed more players? Have you invested enough? This team doesn't look any better than it was last season. The sports are very unhappy. The crowds are not particularly big. You know, take up a season tickets. Tickets are still really expensive. So it was basically 45 minutes of, and I mean, Bates would Bates would resist this stuff. He would absolutely fight his corner to the end. But his wife was there with him, Susanna. And Susanna, as this interview went on and kind of deteriorated, she she just looked more and more grim and more furious. But we stuck to it. We got through the other end of it, but I'm not pleased, I don't think. Uh, do you reckon she operates the fax machine in uh, in Monaco these days? Or is, is Ken still attending to that? <laughs> if, if, do you think there still is one? There's, I tell you what, there's still a fax machine at the DVLA because I'm trying to get my license back <laughs> and they keep saying to you, send this through via fax. Like, I don't even know where I'd go for fax machines. God, so these surely days. football clubs have got them for transfer deadline day because everything's done by fax, isn't do it? Think, we should... do, do you think just for old times' sake? Yeah. We, sh- we should say, by the way, that you're getting your license back because of the, the brain operation. That's right. You, yes. you had it removed, not for any other. Yeah. Despite the story that's coming up about Fulham Away, yes, not for um, driving infringement. Well, go on then, Fulham Away. I can't remember which season this was in, but it was quite recently, just before I, I left the Evening Post. I used to drive and I would pick up other people from the Evening Post and we'd all go together. And on this particular Tuesday, we were meeting at Ferrybridge Services. For some reason, we left it really late. And I don't know why. I think we just didn't think enough about the timing. So at about half past four, we were going through this massive detour through Nottingham on the way to Fulham because the M1 was closed and was closed for miles and miles and miles. And we came out the bottom of Nottingham at about just after five o'clock and we still had about 150 miles to go or something like that. And we all just said, I think we're in a bit of trouble here. I don't know if we're going to make this. Let me just pause for you. Um, yes. And presumably at that point, you drove to London at 70 miles an hour and That's right. made, made it in time for kickoff. Yep. Yeah, bang on, 70 miles an hour plus. And somehow we were able to get there and sit down and plug in the laptops just as the teams were coming at um, at quarter to seven. But that's that's by a mile the closest I've come to thinking 
I'm not going to make it to this game. We're, we're actually going to find ourselves just outside Watford as Tom Kearney scores after 30 seconds. Actually, a photographer at the Evening Post as well missed that. Remember the famous 6-1 at Charlton, the Peter Reid game? Stuck in the Blackwall Tunnel because it was an accident. And he'd, he'd gone way in advance, like giving himself loads of time. But the thing about the Blackwall Tunnel is, once you're in it, you just cannot get out until they, they clear the road. So he was sat listening to the radio of the game when he should have been pitch side oh, getting a few snaps awful that is stress when, yeah it's stressful when, you, when you're late for something or you've got a deadline to meet and especially mm-hmm. you know, it's a fixed kickoff like that speaking of accidents what happened in Poland oh Poland so I went to Poland to do a piece on Cleek um, I met up with his in the, um, in the before times this was before uh, Covid yes that's Poland. right yeah. only just actually it was February before the, the lockdown and I, and I can remember thinking then I don't know how many more of these we'll be able to do really before it starts getting getting a bit dicey but I got to the I got to the airport Got a hire car, nice little Volkswagen. And on the first day, I met up with his, his mum and dad at the airport and they'd very kindly arranged to go round his old club to meet old coaches and, and friends of his, you know, just to get a picture of what it'd been like for him growing up. Went to his school, met his old school teacher and everything else. And in order to do this, I had to chase them around Krakow, them in an Audi, me in this Volkswagen, right through the centre of the city. So we're going over the, over the river and back and forth and, and it was incredibly busy. And obviously I was driving on the right, which I've done loads of and, and generally fine with. But at this junction, there was a bit of a dunch. Unfortunately, oh, it what, was sorry? A, a dunch. That's a, is that um, a Scots word? I think it probably is. That's a great yeah. word. I've never yeah, heard but, it before. But you, but you know exactly what that means. I do. Now, fortunately, there was basically no damage done at all, which was great because when I was able to return the, uh, the car to the, the hire people, there were no issues with it. They gave it an inspection. It was all, it was all fine and there were no problems. But in order to just smooth the water over... I gave the driver of the other car a little bit of money, you know, and said, look, you know, it was, it was my, <laughs> oh, Philip. it was my, it was my fault. You know, it was my fault. So if there is anything, and there was nothing wrong with it, but I said, look, you know, if, if there is any problems. So we, we settled it, settled it that way. Um, Scotsman and, handing over money. And the moral of that story is when you get to the airport, always, always pay the extra for the insurance that says that you will never, ever have to pay any excess or any cash ever. Because that time I didn't bother. First time ever, I thought, they, they said to me, in order to, you know, for the, the full insurance, it's an extra 100 quid. And I was like... Again, this is where the Scotsman gene kicks absolutely, in. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I'm, so it's like, I'm nah, not paying I'm not, that. I'm not paying that. Um, <laughs> you know, um, the where where they live, the town where they live down the road, um, it's 30 miles. Even I can do that. You know, that, that'll be all right. Um, Mind you, there is that yeah, risk with, with a hire car, isn't there, that you treat it like a Formula One car when you're in a hire car. You always, very much Because so, it's not yeah. your own. Yeah, no, you think, no, well, I'm, I'm, gi- I'm giving this back. Absolutely. Um, but that was like road rash around um, the centre of Krakow, which was great fun, actually. It was, it was absolutely terrific, but not necessarily recommended. I feel like from, from, everyone, from my own peace of mind, I need to inform you, you can get third party excess insurance <laughs> and it is a lot cheaper than it buying from the, from the hire car company. That's, so why, that's why I tend to, to look do. into. I shall remember that. I did have that once. I um, once had a hire car and I won't say the firm or when it was, but um, it was parked on my street and one of the kids on the street uh, went past it with a, with a scooter and must have fallen off the scooter or whatever and it scraped just by the by the door sill, you know, where yeah, you, you yeah. climb in with your feet mm. kind of thing. This big circular scratch mark and I was like, oh my God, I'm in so much trouble. Uh, but it kind of, it sloped down in a way so at a certain angle you couldn't quite see it. So when I took the hire car back, you know, they do the inspection where they, they give it a cursory look over to see if there's any damage to it. I made sure I parked that side really, really close to a fence so they couldn't get down that side of it. <laughs> and they went, looked around and went, yep, 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 yep. There you go. I went, yes. That's a, it, yeah. As soon as you've handed it back, it's theirs then. Same thing. I, I went out with a wet cloth, gave it a clean up. I thought that was absolutely fine. No, no issue with it at all. And, and they didn't disagree. But the first time I ever drove on the right for um, for work was um, when we went to Germany in 2007 with Leeds. And they were supposed to play... Dynamo Dresden in a friendly on the Saturday and the story was that a thousand fans Leeds fans were expected to fly into Dresden for this game Dresden were likely to give the sort of welcoming party that Dresden have from time to time over the years there was also a neo-Nazi rally going on in Leipzig I think which meant that the police in that area were completely spread all over the place and too, spread too thinly so at the very last minute, and I mean on the um, the Friday, because I've still got a programme for that game that never took place, the, the Dresden game. It was just cancelled. That was it. You know, it's like, no, you're not playing this game. That's the end of it. So Leeds arranged this game with Slovan Liberic in the Czech Republic. I was over there with Tony Johnson, our cameraman, and, and we had to go. You know, the office said, you got to go cover this. So we went and bought a map and we said... I don't from where we are. I've no idea where the Czech Republic is. I mean, I know it's roughly, it's roughly <laughs> it's that, it's in, over that way. in the vicinity and in that direction, but I don't know how far we're talking. 
and I've never heard of Liberich. You know, I don't, I, I don't know, uh, I, I don't know anything about it. So we went and got this car from the airport. It was the first time I'd ever driven on the right. And Tony was white for the whole journey to the Czech Republic because I kept, you know, it's like I kept getting too close to the curb, kept getting too close to the curb, and and he would spend all time so, all too close to the other side of the road and and all this that and the other. But on that journey, we did scrape a hubcap because basically I I did kind of scrape the curb at, at one point. And that was 50 quid, that 50 quid to replace a single hubcap. I'm just putting the uh, the journey from Dresden to Liberec into uh, into the maps. It's, it's a couple of hours by road. It wasn't about, bad, actually. About 100 miles you've, you're talking. But bear in mind that you had no sat-nav then. So we bought this German road map and I just said to Tony, look, open <laughs> open this and it's on you really. You tell me where to go and I will, will go there. And sure enough, we did roll in and we made it and we made it home. Yeah. Well, that's good news. Can I ask about something? On You've put a list of, uh, of things we could maybe talk about here. I don't know if you meant to put this one into into Google and, you, and it's ended up on the sheet, but Naked Boxing in London has, has, has appeared <laughs> yeah, on here. This, interview. this was a bit before my time doing Leeds. I went down to cover, there's a boxer in Huddersfield, a flyweight called Dale Robinson, and he was fighting a guy called Martin Power down at Elephant Castle. So I went down, and there were a couple of other um, local fighters on the bill as well, Yorkshire fighters, one of whom got knocked out. So I'd, done this doing this report on him and he um, he was taken away for assessment and everything else so I thought do you know what I'll step, I'll see if I can have a chat with the, the guy who was fighting and just get his thoughts on the fight so I went and he st- knocked on the dressing room door I said oh yeah just from um, Yorkshire Evening Post I'd like to speak to this guy um, somebody else in the dressing room said yeah yeah he says just come in and he'll, he'll chat to you now so I went in and this this guy I should have looked up his name actually I can't remember but then maybe I should preserve his, his dignity and um, absolutely start bullet naked <laughs> and stood there just running me through round one round two and then round three where he'd he knocked this guy out and it's that thing where you'd you're just standing nodding going oh yeah you can't yeah, be okay, you can't okay. be stood next to a naked person and not it, be aware of it the whole time can you that's no, the thing i thought you were going to say not be naked yourself you were say. <laughs> i sort of wondered if that might have been easier actually if it might have broken the ice a little bit you know um, but but he seemed totally unfazed by this which made me wonder if he just did it all the time you know and totally Totally on fuss, but yeah, that outweirds any interview I've done done for football, I think. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Well, the great thing about this podcast for the listeners' point of view is they can hear our reactions change in real time. Um, We are now post-press conference. Uh, The listener will be aware, of course, now, about who's absent from the Wolves game at the weekend. No Phillips. Phillips is healthy. They tricked us with that video of him doing his little his little bit of training. He's healthy, but Bielsa's view is that having missed three weeks, he is not ready for Saturday. I don't know if that means he's not ready for the squad, or it certainly sounded like he's definitely not ready for the starting lineup. I am a little bit surprised by that. I, I thought that if there was a chance of getting Phillips in, you would in the circumstances, but. Bielsa has his principles and, and this is one of them that if he if he isn't convinced by a player's fitness he, he just doesn't doesn't play him and that looks how it's going to be 
with Phillips. I think every chance that Phillips will be fit for Norwich the following weekend. I know we've got Arsenal in between and it's not an insignificant game that, but I think all eyes are kind of on the Premier League at the moment. But that is um, that is not great news, that, at all, before the Wolves game. Definitely not. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. I mean, hopefully he's on the bench. And we should say as well that we, we don't know if there's science to back this up, as we were touching on earlier on. You know, I'm sure there is there is data and the, you know, the sports science people will know what his output levels are. But for God's sake, please just play him. If there's any chance of getting him in the side, it really feels like we need him so much, doesn't it? Well, when the going's good, this is a sort of weekend where you can say, look, Phillips isn't trained for three weeks. So do you know what? I'm not going to push him. And everybody says, yeah, yeah, good idea that, you know, really, really sensible. But when the going's not so good, suddenly the kind of inclination to take risks outside of, you know, outside of Thorpe Arch is definitely there, isn't it? Like all of us are sitting here saying, you, you kind of wish Phillips was was going to start, but you know with Bielsa, and again, this goes back to the start, and it goes, all this stuff like small squad, you know, style of play, everything else, and he touched on all of this today. A really fascinating press conference, actually. One of, the, one of the press conferences I've enjoyed most recently, so much so that I'm actually going to write about it, which I don't normally do with his press conferences, but he was, he was kind of really melancholy, I think is the word, without being defeatist. He's you feeling know, it, he's feeling it, isn't he? It's consuming him, this. He, he was saying at one point, Somebody asked him, how do you get away from this? You know, what do you do to sort of alleviate the stress? And he basically said, when I'm in periods of adversity, I don't do anything that relates to pleasure in the slightest because I cannot mix <laughs> this is Michael, pleasure this is Michael's life. sadness. It did sound like Normanton in his shorts in, in January, yeah. Uh, but It he, sounds like Bielsa's going like, no butter on the toast though. That, it must be that, dry. That sort of thing, yeah. You know, like self-flagellation and taking it very much to heart, which I think is a good thing because you know that it matters. And you know that he can see a lot of what we're seeing. I mean, Southampton, he said, you know, I, I, I don't want to pretend that that was just another game because everybody can see that it wasn't. He was asked about the stat that said that Southampton had outrun Leeds. And we don't have access to the full distance data at the Athletics. So I don't know whether Southampton went further than they normally do or whether Leeds ran less far um, than they should have done or, or Bielsa expects. But Bielsa did say that is one of the things that, that worried me. You know, that did worry me on, on Saturday. And we didn't play well and a lot of things didn't work. But in these periods, and, you know, this this relates very strongly actually to what happened after the Forest game, which feels even now like the, the, the one point of, I don't know about crisis, but the one point of real pressure that he's had. And he was saying, you know, in these circumstances, you have to convince the players that they're good, not, you have to convince them to do things, not order them to do things. You can't sort of crack the whip and demand things from them. You have to almost coax it out of them. And it was the same after Forest. It was, you know, that thing about saying to them, you are a good team. You know, you are a good team and you can play well. And it is the results are not great, you know, but this is how, how it can change. So I very much think he knows what he's doing. I still think he is constrained by what's going on in the treatment room. You know, there's no Robin Cock this weekend. There's no Luke Ayling still. There's no Bamford. Unfortunately, there's no Junior Furpo either. I think all of them could potentially be available for Norwich, but Norwich is another week away and it's it's Wolves that's right in the in the eye of the lens at the moment. So it's it's tough. And you can see from looking at him and hearing him um speak that, that he, he knows it's tough, you know. This has been a very sad week, to use his words. It has been a sad week. Yeah. And I've not got any happier today either. No, I don't, <laughs> th- I don't think we've done a, a bit for the general um general well being of of Leeds and beyond. But also, you know, he, he was trying at one point to talk about keeping things in perspective and what does a defeat at Southampton mean in comparison to some of the things that people have going on in their lives. And I, I totally get that. I wonder if it's really quite as sad as we're all feeling or actually whether we're just going through a slump that weirdly, having been totally, totally accustomed to this at Leeds for what, about 10, 15 years, we're suddenly out of the habit of, and, and this is kind of weird, uncharted territory for Bielsa. And nobody quite knows what to what to make of it. I also think nobody can quite put the finger on what's going on with the team. You know, people just aren't playing well and it's hard to know why and, and hard to know for sure or to understand if that's going to be washed away quickly and by, you know, turn of the year, everything will all be in order or, or whether it is a bit, a bit more endemic. So as, as I say, I think it's good to see that it clearly, if, if he'd been saying to you, Oh, I thought we were, you know, it wasn't that bad at Southampton and, you know, I think we're fine and, you know, just got to keep doing what we're doing. Then you would wonder how much he was really picking up the signs of what was going on, but he definitely has. Yeah, because you do get managers who can sound delusional in the face of defeat, can't you? They say there are plenty of good things to go out there. Lots of them, yeah. And he made the point as well that he's 
team managers in the past, and he, this wasn't him criticising them, but who have taken the attitude of, right, Saturday's gone, you know, it's gone and we move on. And he said, the problem with that is that if you made errors in the game, you have to understand what they were. And if you made errors, you have to correct them and you have to improve on them and you have to try and make sure that they don't happen again. And I think his view is what you can't do is just say, well, it was a bad day at the office. Um, everybody back in on Monday and, and we'll crack on. You you have to be serious about what's what's going wrong. So you do very much have visions of him and his own four walls, you know, stewing over this massively. And it is a it is a big test for him. I don't know if you'd say this is the biggest test of, of his period as, as manager, but he, he did say that, you know, as bad weeks go, he could only think of five or six others that would compare to this. And I definitely think it's his biggest test in, in the job since, um, since Forrest away. It is nice to hear him Acknowledging a problem, I suppose. Like you say, he's not done the Warnock have said they're a great bunch of lads, you can't fault their effort. And <laughs> we go again, which which wouldn't have essentially mean a lot. I think the concern comes from given the team news he's just delivered, you think, well, what can he actually do that is different? How there's not there's not really a pack to shuffle, is there at the moment? It's based more of a it's more of a systemic problem, isn't it, than one that you can address on a week to week basis with the press conference. Like it is down to transfer policy, size of squad, all the things that people are concerned about. And that's part of the reason why I think probably we can't shake it until we get performances and maybe a little bit of a run of form. You can't shake all those things. They're all like the elephants dancing around in the room, aren't they? It, he's preaching to the converted as well because there are very few people out there who who don't want it to go well for him. You know, people people do generally wish Bielsa very well in this job and, and have enjoyed immensely having him as head coach. And, and nobody will like seeing him like this. I think... It will make people more sympathetic in that sometimes in these circumstances, there's almost nothing worse than seeing a manager or a coach who's really bullish or hard-headed and won't have it. You know, there was no attempt to kind of fight with any of us today or to really kind of come back at the questions and, and bite at them at all. I think he realised that an, an explanation was due and, and and he'd obviously been thinking about it a lot and, and wanted to, to give it. But you're right. Systemic is the word, really, because if you find yourself without players, without key players, and Rafinha will be back this weekend, so that, that could make a difference. But if you find yourself without players, the, the sort of instant change is quite difficult to quite difficult to facilitate. I mean, if I think back to Forrest, one of the things which I don't think was going on at that time was players dropping like flies and really, really key players being missing, you know, constantly or, or en masse. I may be wrong, and I'd have to have a... I look at that but I think that's the difference now is that the, the form isn't there but neither are a lot of the key faces and the people like Phillips who you really would want in the mix but again it goes back to needing a performance doesn't it and the out of, out of form players rather being the ones to step up now when it's, yeah. it's really needed and you look at people like Rodrigo up front which maybe is why he has become a lightning rod for, for criticism because of the transfer fee because of his age and all that he is a senior player albeit he's relatively new to the club you need him in there with some of the other characters dragging us up by the bootstraps, really, don't we? You get the sense someone like Llorente has got kind of got that in his character. I mean, do we, do we have a, a lack of leaders, in your opinion? I don't think so, especially. I, th- I think the, they do have a leadership group at Leeds and they have that now in the 23s as well. And the idea is that you create this little group of professionals who the club can go to over certain issues. So, for example, the wage deferral right at the start of COVID was agreed initially with the senior leadership group in the squad and then it becomes agreed what's going to happen or at least you know they filter back to the other players and, and you you have a sort of grown-up process that isn't just the case of emails dropping from Kinnear or whoever else saying by the way you're all taking a wage deferral until or, or we want you to you know it's, it's kind of like negotiation really so there, there is a very good group there Ailing, Cooper, Dallas um, even Forshaw you know who, who's able to do that they have lost a couple of big characters they've lost Hernandez Berardi, by all accounts, was a very good presence in, in the dressing room and, and has gone, clearly. Alioski was a bit, you know, off the wall, but popular, you know, like popular, popular guy. I don't think there is a, a big problem in that sense. And again, I think that's the sort of thing that people assume when a team starts playing badly, you know, that there's nobody kind of dragging them through it. I don't think it's so much about leadership in terms of like leadership ability. I think the leadership will come from players playing an awful lot better. And you're right, I mean... Rodrigo is is a lightning rod purely because of his feet. That's that's fact. You know, if he'd come in as a five million pound forward, you'd be saying to yourself, well, you know, it hasn't really happened at the moment. But that was a record signing for Leeds. That was almost thirty million pounds. So you do automatically expect more, and it does need to come from you know from him, from Cleek, 
Rafinha, I don't think you can ask for much more from. I think he has been very, very good um, all season. But I don't think there are too many others that you would say have been bang on it. Do you know what? You're going to hate me for this, but Go on. we're going to win on Saturday. Don't be, don't be saying this. I've said it. Do you know, every, every time this season you've said that to me with that face. This, this, the negativity this, and the sadness. Taken a we, we've taken It can't continue endlessly. And I, I've got, I, I shouldn't have to apologise for believing in my team. I do still believe in them, despite everything, despite having had an awful week. Nobody's asking you to apologise. We just <laughs> promised to come back next week and um, and hang it, hang it around your neck. What, Again, what's, what's more important to you, though? Uh, being right or being decent? Well, yeah, quite. Quite. That's... <laughs> That's why I've been wrong with predictions for so, for so many years. Um, hard game this one this it weekend. Is, isn't it? It's made um, yeah, harder by like, the absence of Phillips, of course it, it is. But. And also that they found a little bit of form. You know, they they have come into form. They had that great win at Villa last weekend. Bizarre win at Villa. I don't quite know how they they dug that out in the end from two 0 down so late in the game. So winnable, like so many games this season, winnable but difficult, and. I really feel that the the kind of crunch game coming up is is going to be Norwich. That is that is the game, particularly if they're winless. That is the game that Leeds have got to go and do something in because that game, even more than Southampton, there will be nowhere to hide. There's no reason why we can't win. We can win despite the shortcomings, despite the results so far. It's within this team. They haven't become terrible players overnight. I just I refuse to countenance that. Well, I, what, I don't think they become terrible players, but when there are so key good players not in that team I do have concerns about it mm. like if we start with the same 11 plus Rafinha I still I don't think we win we can't play 12 players Michael <laughs> that would be a, pl- a plan <laughs> we might need it but no we can't do that <laughs> but yeah I don't I don't see that there's enough change in that team to get the win but I'm, I would be delighted to be proved wrong well why don't we but we, for why? a start we're going to be playing four at the back alright it might mean Strauch in midfield and that doesn't always work brilliantly but it's also not terrible either yes you know? yeah no that's um, that's true why don't we swear off predi- predictions this week and just say they could win? Because you're cowards. That's, what's, that's yeah. what it is. You are cowards. I'm prepared to put my neck on the block here and say, let's let's go for a win. It's like Terry Pratchett used to say, you know, you kind of sit and rolling dice with massive consequences um, <laughs> at the end of it. Um, there is people, like you know, people, the, the people, gods. people will have a go at us for being positive. And they go, Why did you predict a win? It doesn't affect anything. We all know this. It's just a bit of silly fun. That, I is, think that is very true. I think this would be a draw. I think it'd be tight. I think it'd be a draw. Would you be happy with a draw? Yes. Why? Uh, uh, given the circumstances, I feel like we need anything that would sort of stop the rot to an extent. Because I feel like the Southampton game was bad enough that a draw would actually be a fairly major step in the right direction. Mm. Four points from these two games coming up, and obviously Arsenal in between, but from the league games coming up, I think four points would be good. Let's not ignore that Arsenal game. Actually, we've, we've tended to do this one because we record on a Thursday and then we never quite look ahead beyond the weekend uh, and realise that there's a, there is a League Cup game, which uh, you're going to be going to that one, aren't you, Phil, down at the Emirates? I will be there. Enjoying yeah. the hospitality again. It's kind of weird, isn't it? Because for the you know, past couple of seasons, and particularly last year in, in the Premier League, especially that FA Cup tie at Crawley, you just thought they were well-placed enough to have a, have a cup run. I've never really believed in the idea that a cup run is either good or bad for you. I just think it's a thing. You know, if, if you're in it, then you're in it. If you're not, you're not. Obviously, if it completely decimates your squad, then that's different. But you do always have the option of just playing a very young team or, or inexperienced team. So I don't think it's ever a good thing to go out or a you know a bad thing to go through or, or vice versa. I feel, again, it, it, like if Leeds play well, it feels very winnable. That tie Arsenal just seems to... You see, you're sat here saying that so we've had this doom and gloom about Wolves and yet you're sat here telling me that we can go out there and win at the Emirates against Arsenal, which on paper I would argue is probably the more difficult of the two. A little bit less pressure on that game. Arsenal seemed to bob between being bang, bang average and OK, but never much better than OK with, with very rare exceptions. So if you're asking me to predict the result, I think Arsenal will probably win. But it is a kind of winnable tie, if that makes sense. In the same way as Wolves is a winnable game, I'm just calling a draw. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm going to do is I'm going to predict all three outcomes I and that's... I will be proved right. I mean, like Wolves are 10th, Arsenal are 12th at the minute. There you go. So I don't know what bearing that has on anything. <laughs> I'm just saying. Do we expect to see any... Well, I mean, not that we can rotate too much, but do you think we might see someone like Bait and Gelhart maybe get a, a go in the Arsenal game or do you think you'd be more trying to play the first 11 back I mean, into form? Does he have to manage the injury crisis um, by playing a couple of younger players? That is a question, to an, isn't to it? To an extent, yeah. 
But then again, if you have, he said that Ealing and Bamford will miss that game as well. And I think for Poutou, but say one or other of them was to be fit for it, then I suppose it's potentially a way of getting some more football into the legs and playing them. But I, I, it's not going to be full strength, is it? No, I mean, do you think, I mean, this is related to further down the line and we can address this as we get to the back end of the year. Do you think there's a, be a temptation to enter the market in January? It's going to depend on the league position, isn't it? But I think if they're not in a good league position, they're going to have to think about it seriously. Uh, they are going to have to think about what's not working with the squad, what they need from it. And and yeah, I do think they, they have to be open to that. I said, I think two podcasts ago, I said, if they get to January and they're in a really good position, I would hold tight on the money with the view to doing something good and proper next summer, you know, particularly in midfield. But I don't think anybody can afford to run through January doing nothing if you feel like you're in a bit of bother. January business has not been wildly successful in recent years, has it? I think we got Debock one year, we got Kiko one year, and some some bloke Forsh- called uh, Jean Kevin Augustin as well. Forshaw and Roberts were both January signings. Um, I'm Roberts was out think- injured for the entire season as well, wasn't he? After that, I'm trying to think about um, Bielsa's first January and what happened happened in that period. Not uh, oh, they tried to get Dan James, didn't they? And that didn't happen. And Casilla uh, rolled up from from Real Madrid. So it's yeah. Do you know? Can I ask you a question about this actually? Because yeah, running through some of those names, do you think there's a genuine and warranted criticism to be levelled at, at, at Victor Orta constructively uh, about this shoot for the moon attitude when it comes to signings? Are we are we overreaching sometimes? You know, in terms of the, the amount of money we're spending versus the amount of money we've got available. Would, would it, what I'm asking is, would it make more sense, let's say, instead of dropping 30 million quid on Rodrigo, would it have made sense to get three 10 million pound players with that money? Perhaps it would have done. Although the one thing I would say would, was that in this window, they were obviously looking at Gallagher and Lewis O'Brien, who you would not class as kind of shooting for the stars, particularly. And actually, there was quite a negative response to the, the story we ran on Gallagher, you know, just saying, yeah. I don't want him particularly. I think looking at Palace, he'd have been good. Yeah. yeah, so well, so, so so credit to actually that as as an approach, yeah. but but is, but, yes, but is that no. because they then they've got twenty five million in the, reserve for Dan James or whoever? You know, it's, it's definitely a fact that some recruitment has been good. Some deals, like for example Ben White, you know, uh, absolutely. Even though it was on loan and it wasn't permanent, um, absolute cracker. Rafinha at seventy million pounds, fantastic. Melier at five million. If he was to go at some point, I think will make them a huge amount of of cash on that. There have been plenty of others that have not worked. I mean, Augustine could be hideously expensive deal for somebody who played like 43 minutes and then of course you have Rodrigo 27 million pounds you haven't really seen that in him it, it has been it has been hit and miss definitely mm. yeah but you mean I remember Howard Wilkinson saying in an interview what is it he wanted a 40% success rate or that's what he expected from you know dipping into the transfer market I think as well because we're in this era now and we're, we're part of it I guess of, of the, the hyper analysis of absolutely everything and breaking everything down into granular detail there's a lot more pressure and attention drawn to stuff like this. Everyone either wants Orta to be king or Orta to be written off as an yeah, absolutely it, terrible disaster. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. I th- no, I think so. Um, and But then I, I always talk about the, the separate aspect of that as well, away from recruitment, which is managing somebody like Bielsa and managing him as well as they have. I think it's far more nuanced than just saying, have you signed good players? Of which, yes, they have, but equally they've, they've made poor signings as well. I always remember somebody, I think it was Klopp's uh, number two, saying that Football is is like chess, but with dice, uh, which is to say that you can plan and you can have strategies and you can map all this stuff out. But there are aspects of it that that come down to to chance, really. Um, and I, looking at Rodrigo, I I thought it, I thought it should be a good signing. I'd still like to think that at some point it might develop into a good signing, but it hasn't got there yet. It feels like at thirty years old, he doesn't have a lot of time on his side to to find that form, does it? Or many years in which he's going to be able to hold up a, a twenty-seven million pound valuation, but that's not to say that you can't get more out of him than they are at the moment. I just, as we said a, a little while ago, uh, it's still just difficult to see whether in signing a good player, whether they've actually signed the right player. Mm-hmm. So Rodrigo one nil is my prediction for the weekend. Phil, you're going for win, loss, and draw. Michael, whatever is the most pessimistic outcome, you've gone for that. Yeah, yeah, I think we'll lose. <laughs> <laughs> Got to be honest. Terrible, terrible. I don't, I'd be delighted to be proved wrong. This is like um, teleporting back to the, the final weeks of McDermott seized <laughs> in charge where you want you want predicting resu- the outcome. You were predicting how many goals were going to get, get scored. Get Gianluca Fester on the bench next to But, uh, get, but given all, all the stuff, you know, the stuff we were laughing about there in part two, uh, all these little adventures you've had, Phil, you know, things are fine. 
Yeah. Fan. It's, we're under a bit of pressure because we're at uh, the bottom end of the table at the minute because they haven't found form. But broadly speaking, everything's fine. As the saying goes, that's football. It is football. Uh, we will reunite next week to celebrate the three points. And uh, actually, you're going to be away, aren't you, um, through the week? So we'll be doing yes, it probably remotely. I'm going to Harry Potter World next week. <laughs> um, so right on, on, on the, your own? Right on the front line. <laughs> right on the front line. Um, so, yes, I will be coming to you live. Well, not live, can but you... coming to you from a travel lodge. Oh, no, that. I was going to say, can't you do it from like Hogwarts or from. Uh, well, that'd be a great idea. Wouldn't like it? Just, yes, just get on your I phone can, and we'll do it yeah. by Zoom. Yeah, do my best. Well, let's, we'll... Do, let's do part three from that. Yeah, and if you are uh, dealing with half-term yourself, good luck with that, and uh, we will see you on the other side of all that. Don't forget to subscribe to The Athletic uh, via theathletic.com forward slash leads pod, 33% off. We'll do it again next week then. We'll see you soon. The Phil Hay Show.